23andMe's Health Plus Ancestry Kit is a personalized tool for understanding how your genes may influence your health. Start the year by learning more about your DNA. Go to 23andMe.com fool to get $30 off each Health Plus Ancestry Kit now through January 31st. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Wednesday, January 17th. I'm your host, Christine Hargis, and I'm joined via Skype by healthcare expert, Todd Campbell. Hey, Todd, how are you? Christine, how are you? I mean, I'm just, I was so excited when I woke up this morning because I'm like, oh, great, I get to talk to Christine and see what happened at JP Morgan. Well, I mean, every Wednesday you wake up excited to talk to me, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but even more so today because, you know, I mean, JP Morgan, I, I listened to last week's show, which was fantastic. Uh, you calling in basically from from out there yeah and you know i just was just i wanted to hear more i thought our listeners probably would want to hear more too like what was the energy like there what was what was the scene it was really incredible so for a little bit of background in case you missed last week's episode i was at the jp morgan healthcare conference in san francisco this is the biggest healthcare event that happens all year it's a bunch of biotech investors and executives and media all converge in san francisco and it's just, the energy is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, I woke up, I don't even know what time each morning to be to business meetings at 7 a.m. And then you're out until 2 a.m. at all these different events afterwards. And I just didn't sleep for about a year. I realized as soon as I started doing the ad read for 23 and me at the top of the episode, I'm like, man, you can kind of hear it in my voice that I'm still pretty wiped. But I mean, yeah, honestly, yeah. Like, I mean it sounds like you probably were just, just running from place to place. Is it all done at one venue, Christine, or is it spread out or is it? Yeah, so it's kind of interesting because the event itself takes place at the Westin St. Francis, which is right on Union Square. But most people that are present at the conference, I, I say that with air quotes that I realize nobody listening to this can see, but most people that are there are not actually there to go to the official J.P. Morgan event because it's fairly limited. It's kind of tough to get passes for it. So people are just all over the city doing side conferences that are happening in conjunction with J.P. Morgan. They're there to do media interviews. They're there for all these other reasons. I mean, as somebody put it to me, they're like, if J.P. Morgan didn't exist, the industry would need to make some sort of event up just to have a reason to get all these people that are involved in the industry in the same place at the same time. I just imagine there was just so many uh, takeaways that you had walking away from your your time there. I mean, with all the different companies you saw and all the different presentations you listened to and the, all the different industry leaders that you were able to speak with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, something I didn't realize going into it was how much is not in the transcripts that you read. So I've been covering this event for several years now. And I just read the transcripts. I read other people's uh, roundup articles and stuff like that. But there are things that you miss when you're not actually present for the presentation. For example, in the Westin, there are all these different size conference rooms. There's everything from the grand ballroom, where it's totally decadent, and there are tables, and it's really, really nice, and it's huge. And that's where you get the big shot companies presenting. And then it goes all the way down to tiny closet size rooms, where they kind of shove the company that aren't quite as important. So there's this huge kind of like game theory going on about what company is going to be in what room. And it's kind of a status symbol. And then on top of that, you can add to it how packed the room is. 
And I don't know if that's just a reflection of the planners misjudging how popular the company will be or, you know, I'm only just picking up on these nuances because it was my first time going to the conference. But that's definitely something that I noted in the notes from each of the presentations that I saw. It's like, oh, okay, small conference room, but huge crowd. Right, right. I suppose that you want to try to under under promise and over deliver. So, you know, you've got a, a room full packed full of people that, that creates an excitement all on its own. So better to have a smaller room with a huge turnout. Yeah. Um, you must have struggled to, to figure out what companies you wanted to go see. But there's one burning question that I have for you, Christine. Oh, boy. Did you did you go to the Celgene presentation? I did. So Celgene kicks off the presentation or the entire conference every single year. They're given what is possibly the highest standing, which is to be the very first presentation Monday morning in the Grand Ballroom. And this was coming off of some news that they were going to acquire impact biomedicines. <laughs> Those of you who yeah. have been following. Yeah. Okay. So that brings me to my next big question, Christine, right? At the presentation, they hinted all about buying Juno Therapeutics. No, okay, so <laughs> this is the thing. There is so much hype going into the conference that Celgene was going to make a big, splashy acquisition. Historically, this conference is filled with huge news. It's a very volatile week for biotechs of all shapes and sizes. And everybody thought that Celgene is probably going to acquire somebody. I think a lot of people thought that it was going to be Bluebird, but a lot of them also thought maybe it's going to be Juno Therapeutics. And when this acquisition of Impact Biomedicines was announced, I believe it was on Sunday night, people were kind of disappointed. <laughs> That's for a number of reasons. I mean, it's a privately traded company. And so I think a lot of publicly traded company investors were like, oh, man, we're not going to profit off of that. But then also, it's just not that splashy. It was like a one point one billion dollar deal that maybe with some milestones could be up to seven billion, but it just it wasn't the big acquisition that everybody wanted, and we didn't get that sort of gratification until last night, Tuesday night. The Wall Street Journal reports that Celgene is in talks to acquire Juno Therapeutics, which is the news we've all been waiting for. Yeah, and, and you know maybe it was just one of those things where you know the conversations were going on, but they just had stalled and. And they they just didn't have everything ready in in the time frame that they wanted to. And you know, you and I can we can talk about some of the theories behind why Celgene might be interested in Juno. And and then you know maybe I'd, I'd love to get at least a, a second or two of, of your thoughts. You know, walking away from the presentation, what you think people were attitude toward the company was for 2018. But you know, yeah, I think this is a, a potentially a very big deal. It's very intriguing, especially because it comes on you know only a few months uh, after Kite sold to Gilead Sciences for what almost 12 billion. Yeah, that was a $12 billion acquisition. And so now looking at these Juno uh, talks that people are speculating are occurring, I mean, I, I trust the journal to report that accurately, but it hasn't happened yet. And so Juno's stock is up roughly 50% today. Their valuation now stands at just under $8 billion. So you have people that think that this could be a $10 billion deal. You also have people that think it could be even larger than Gilead Sciences' acquisition of Kite. I think one of the reasons for that is that Juno and Celgene already have a partnership that has been around for quite a few years now. And when uh, uh, Celgene initially bought a stake in Juno, it was at $93 per share. Juno currently trades at $67 per share. So it's quite possible that you could find Juno's shareholders and the, the, uh, the decision makers at that company demanding a higher buyout price. Yeah, you, I mean, the, of course, there, the, it was a different world back then, right? You still had JCAR 15. You didn't have the problems with cerebral, cerebral edema that sidelined that drug. 
Um, you, you know, there's a few different things there floating around in my head on this on this entire subject. You know, you've got Celgene looking at it and saying, okay, yeah, we're in, you know, roughly for 93 for 10 percent. You know, so, you know, as the company back then was worth, in our view, somewhere around, you know, 9.3 to 10 billion. Right. So they still own 9.75 percent of of Juno. Right. The big story, the big reason that they want Juno um, is because they want the North American rights to JCAR 17. And, you know, we've talked about this on the show before, right, Christine? We've talked about CAR-Ts, chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapies. They supercharge the patient's immune system so they can bind to and destroy cancer cells better than current existing treatments, theoretically. Um, the deal that Celgene has with Juno is for ex-U.S. rights, not North American rights. And, you know, you could argue that U.S., Sales are the crown jewel of any drug, right? Because of the way that we handle pricing and and demand, and and you know we have the biggest drug market in the world. So I think that you know that's why people are excited about the opportunity because they're saying, okay, yeah, this makes sense. Because yeah, why wouldn't you want to lock up the U.S. rights to JCAR 17 before they file for the NDA? You know, assuming the pivotal trial reads out okay, theoretically you could get an application for approval filed with the FDA. Uh, later this year, maybe early 19. Right. And that does hint at the overall story with Juno, which is that they are, are still a pioneer of CAR-T therapy, but they really fell behind their competitors after five patients died back in 2016 during one of their trials. And they had to end that program. This was the 015 program that you mentioned earlier. So now their lead candidate is 017. And that could hit the market in 2019, but they're certainly not first to market with it. And their hope now is that it could be best in class, which from the looks of their data so far, it seems like it certainly could be the case. But a lot rests on the data holding up over time. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about, too, is it worth the $11.9 billion that Gilead paid? But Kite didn't have the same kind of a relationship for, for co-promoting. Um, so, you know, Gilead is able to secure the entire rights to, to that drug. You know, Yescarta, uh, which is the Kite drug, now Gilead drug, Camraya, which is Novartis CAR-T, uh, they're both approved already and on the market. And, you know, there's Camraya is approved for a different indication, but they just got priority review for the same indication. So, you know, if JCAR-17 does make it to market in 2019, it's going to be competing against two already embedded CAR T's within the same indication. So the hope has to be that either it's a better mousetrap, right, and JCAR 17 can win the sales way, um, or that there's not big enough market opportunity that, you know, the three of them can share. Yep, absolutely. Uh, looking at Celgene as a broader business and how investors should be viewing the stock as a potential buying opportunity, what else stands out to you besides this potential acquisition of Juno? Well, the big story here is, you know, what, what's going to reignite investor optimism following their stumbles last fall? You know, I, I, people who follow Celgene are probably pretty aware that they had a disappointing Crohn's disease trial readout last fall. They also had some weak results for their psoriasis drug, Tesla. They reported uh, sales growth that was less than people wanted to see in the third quarter. And that basically, you know, the bloom was off the rose, if you will. Uh, with Celgene shares knocked it from its 52-week highs down to where it is today, uh, which still trades at a pretty good discount to where it was at the peak in 2017. So people are looking at it and saying, well, if we're getting decelerating sales of, of, 
uh, for Otesla, which was, you know, arguably, you know, responsible for a lot of the excitement and enthusiasm for the for the drug for the company over the last two or three years. What is it that's going to, you know, drive sales, uh, reinvigorate sales going beyond 2019? I think we we saw at the J.P. Morgan conference 2018 sales estimates and, and earnings estimates, and yes, they reflect slower growth than we saw in 2017. So investors have to be looking at this, saying, "What's going to reinvigorate uh, that sales growth and push us out beyond, you know, to 2020 and beyond?" Yeah, and a lot of it does lie in the pipeline, both their wholly owned products and also some of their partnered compounds. For example, in the presentation, they highlighted a Bluebird partnership that they have on a drug called BB2121, which is another CAR T in multiple myeloma. Right, and that drug, just so investors know, because you've got Bluebird also trading up about 10%, probably on enthusiasm that maybe Celgene will try and roll up all of these big partnerships at some point in time, right? Um, and, you know, Bluebird's uh, market cap is uh, is higher than Gino. I think it's like eight or nine billion, but it's still less than than Kite. Mm-hmm. Um, BB2121 for multiple myeloma would be a huge drug theoretically because, you know, you look at Celgene and Celgene's got the market share leading first line therapy, Re- Revlimid, and a leading third line therapy with um, Pomalist. And those two drugs combined are generating at almost $10 billion in sales. And if you look at what BB2121 could do is it could expand Celgene uh, uh, into the fourth line setting, and I think that's you know a multi-billion dollar uh, marketplace. Um, investors probably want should know that they're gonna they they unlike with the Juno deal, Celgene does have co co well they have full rights, but Bluebird Bluebird's expected to exercise their co promote rights to the U.S. So they'll be sharing any kind of sales with Bluebird on BB2121 if. Uh, if it eventually reaches the market. I think the big story with multiple myeloma, Christine, you probably agree with me, is the fact that all the advancements we've seen is are improving overall survival in that category, making the addressable market bigger and bigger, and that's helping support multiple myeloma sales growth at Celgene you know, for the foreseeable future. Yep, absolutely. So, summing up on Celgene, the company believes that it will launch 10 potential blockbusters over the next five years. And if it does successfully and they all hit their peak drug or peak sales expectations, that could add over 15 billion in incremental annual revenue, which is pretty impressive. I mean, I've always liked what Celgene is doing. I I like that they give long term guidance. Um, Really didn't like when they had to revise that guidance for 2020 uh, late last year. I mean, that's also a big part of why they had such a, a rough 2017. But I do like what Celgene is doing. I love that they have these partnerships. I will be very interested to see the uh, the price tag of a potential Juno acquisition and also how the other partnerships pan out. You know, with 19 to $20 billion forecasted for 2020, yeah, that's down from what it was before, you know, their disappointment last fall, Christine. But it's still 14.5% compounded annual growth from 2017 through 2020. And EPS expected to go to $12.50. That's compounded annual growth of 19%. It's, it's certainly not tough times, if you will, for Celgene. I mean, it's double-digit growth off of such a, a large base. I mean, it was only 2010 where you know sales for this company were three billion, and now we're talking 10 years later, potentially doing you know 20 billion in sales. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they've gotten so big, and they still have these very impressive expected growth figures coming forward. This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by 23andMe. 23andMe's Health Plus Ancestry Kit is a personalized tool for understanding how your genes could influence your health. 
Send in just a small saliva sample and you'll receive more than 75 online reports on topics like lactose intolerance, genetic weight, and how your genes might impact your risk for certain diseases. Start the year by learning more about your DNA. Go to 23andMe.com fool to get $30 off each Health Plus Ancestry kit now through January 31st. By the way, I saw uh, the CEO of 23andMe present at a fireside chat, and she was just fantastic. This is a very interesting company, and this is not part of the ad read. Yeah, I I, I think that the whole, well, it's really interesting where we're going to be 10 years from now in healthcare. We're certainly going to know a lot more about our bodies, our DNA and RNA um, than we ever did before. And hopefully that'll help you know lead us to getting better treatment, better primary care, Um which, of course, dovetails nicely into the next topic, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the back half of today's show, we are going to cover another company that I saw present at J.P. Morgan. We received an email towards the end of last year from Deborah from San Diego, thanks for writing in, about Teladoc, the ticker there is TDOC, which had just been recommended by the Motley Fool's Rule Breakers service. This isn't a company that gets much love from industry focus, so we want to spend some time digging into the stock because they're working in a really important area of healthcare that could truly revolutionize the patient experience. You know, as Christine, it's interesting when we when you know you mentioned talking about it on today's show, you know, I started doing more and more research on the stock and the more and more research I did, the more and more transformative I came to believe that this company could potentially be and the, the, the whole concept, if you, if you will, of telehealth uh, or healthcare on demand, however you want to look at this. I mean, I started thinking of it as being, you know, almost to the, the to like what we've seen with Illumina in, in how it's transforming um, our, our understanding of our DNA or the RNA uh, or, or CVS and how it's transforming how healthcare is given in person by opening up so many of those minute clinics uh, in people's local neighborhoods. And then I started thinking about Teladoc and saying, you know, if I envision what health care, primary care is going to look like in 20 years, it could very well be that I'm staring at my smartphone and I've got the hologram image of a doctor above it. And, you know, they're able to see me and evaluate me and talk to me as if I am actually in a doctor's office. And that's a pretty that's a pretty uh, transformative, you know, technology, theoretically. Right. Yeah. And you're right that this sort of trend is something that we see in other places, too. I mean, think about how much more prominent teleworking is. There are so many people that are telecommuting. I don't know what the, <laughs> the phrase for that is, telecommuting, teleworking, working remotely. And there are more and more technologies that are enabling people to connect in ways that they were previously unable to do. So what telehealth is trying to uh, to accomplish, and specifically Teladoc, is to provide on-demand ap- appointments and a, a whole health platform using your phone, using your computer, basically going over the internet and using your webcams and the, the phone's uh, calling parts to quickly and easily have a doctor visit. And it's not for every single condition. I mean, there are still going to be critical care moments where you're going to need to go either to the ER or to your your doctor or a specialist. But they've been expanding their platform, particularly with a fairly recent acquisition of a company called Best Doctors, which allowed them to secure access to more and more specialists. So the variety of, of uh, things that can be treated via their platform is growing. Well, it's interesting, Christine, because there's two different parts of that. Yeah, you're right. You're not going to be able to take care of emergent care, but you can certainly take care of episodic care. You know, I've got this rash in my body. What is it? You know, what what the heck? Um, or I've got the flu and I need to get a prescription and I don't want to travel to a minute clinic and I don't want to go to my primary care doctor and I certainly don't want to wait. I want to be able to, to 
deal with someone relatively quickly, get my prescription filled and and feel better. Then you've got the the kind of like the the second uh, uh, advice uh, kind of market for for really complex cases. So you've got best doctors, which is then able to go out and say, okay, I've got a cancer diagnosis. This is the treatment. This is the diagnosis. And best doctors is able to say, yeah okay, my second opinion on that is this, and maybe I have an, a slightly different idea or a slightly different view of what the treatment um, should be for that. And what I found really interesting about Teladoc is that they recognize that trying to market this service directly just to individuals like you and me, me Christine, would be very hard and very costly. You know, I mean, it'd be very tough, I think, um, without doing the model they did. And the model that they did is they said, okay, we're going to go out and we're going to find healthcare plans and we're going to find employers and we're going to get them to offer this as an extra benefit alongside of what they're already doing as far as healthcare. So now you've got workers at these different companies who, alongside of having regular health care insurance, they have the option to be able to call in and speak with um, a professional and get you know some some advice without having to go anywhere for that. And I think that that really is kind of advancing or pulling forward uh, the market penetration. And maybe maybe right we're going to get to a point where Teladoc can go from that you know building momentum to getting flight altitude to being able to actually deliver profits to investors, which is something that they can't they're not doing right right now. Right, they're still fairly early stage. I love this business model, though. As you mentioned, it is a win-win for them to go directly to the insurers and to the the companies that are offering insurance to their employees, because it's a differentiating factor. If you're an insurer and you can offer that, that's something that could potentially attract customers to you. And as the insurer, you're saving money. Uh, there have been studies that show that clients save an average of $472 per patient visit. And that's also combined with an average employee productivity saving, meaning not missing a day of work, of $46 per visit. So, of course, if you're a, a insurer, you want this to be an option for the people that you insure because it lowers your costs. Another thing that I, I yeah, read. it's been, it's more efficient too. It's a more efficient use of the doctor's time, and they don't have to have all of those administrative expenses. I mean, theoretically, you could have a doctor doing this from home and uh, on the side whenever they want to. They can fit way more visits in in the span of an hour than you could in a traditional office environment. Yep, absolutely. One more thing I love about the business model is that it is ninety percent uh, subscriptions, meaning ninety percent of revenue comes from subscriptions from those employers and health plans, as opposed to coming from the individuals using the service. Us. There is a little bit of a, a per visit charge, and that's where you get the, the other 10% of revenue. But subscription models in general, it's just more consistent. It's more reliable. Gives you a lot more visibility, especially, I mean, you can look at with this company, I think that the, the things that investors are going to want to keep an eye on are obviously members, um, which is going to have to do with how many company, companies sign on with Teladoc. So the number of members uh, growing is going to be good because, like you said, they get paid a fee per member that they cover, and that fee has grown from 40 cents in 2014 to 76 cents per member, so that's that's growing nicely. Uh, more importantly, the membership has grown nicely from 8 million members to about 23 million members, I think, uh, since 2014. So that's very, very good. And then, of course, visits, the number of visits. How often are people utilizing the service? And I think that, you know, for me, it makes a lot of sense that visitation is going to climb and climb and climb as people start recognizing this is a lot more convenient for them. 
Right. Absolutely. I mean, it's not even just about that per visit charge. It's really about securing the relationships with the insurers and the employers, because if they're if the people that they cover aren't using it, then maybe you're not going to have as sticky of a relationship. But if it's something that people really grow to love and to require in their health plan, then all of a sudden you're not going to, to drop Teladoc, even if they do increase that subscription fee a little bit. Something that I want to point out as well is that the utilization numbers are growing even faster than the patient base, which is really good. That means that there is a wider adoption. And these numbers are still fairly low. There's only a utilization percentage of 7%, meaning most people that have this available to them aren't using it. I think most people that have it available to them probably don't even know that it's part of their plan. So listeners, if this sounds great to you, I mean, it's been a bad flu season. If you were sick in bed with the flu and you dragged yourself into an urgent care clinic and you would rather just call up a doctor and do a, a FaceTime, probably check this out and see if your plan provides it because it's fairly likely that you might be covered. You know, and the other thing, we didn't even mention this, there's so much to unpack here. I know we're running a little bit tight on time, but um, is the fact that, you know, there's a lot of places in America where access to care really isn't good. You know, you've got these medical deserts where there are not a lot of op- opportunities to see specialists or, or primary care doc- doctors easily. You have to travel pretty far to do so. And I think that this is really going to fill a very important need in those areas that we should keep in mind. Now, as investors, we, I, you know, I, I hinted previously, this company's still losing money, right? But sales are growing quickly. Um, I think that in 2018, they're expecting to see 350 million to 360 million in sales. That would be up a lot from 232 uh, in 2017. But they're expected to lose a dollar 47 per share. Now, it's better than the $1.83 they lost in 2017, but still, those losses are, you know, those are, we have no real pathway yet to be able to say, okay, yeah, here's, here's the year or here's when they're going to get profit. But this company very much is in the rule breakers style. Um, if you're not familiar with our, our service, there's a whole bunch of uh, items that make a stock something that fits the rule breakers model. And a couple of them are definitely evidenced here where it's still small and it's growing and it might be losing money. But and the, the valuation, therefore, is kind of off the charts. I mean, you can't do much of a PE if you don't have earnings. But they're still early stage, and they're looking at such a humongous market. And I, I, I like what you said earlier, Todd, about Illumina, because this is a company that is disrupting its market. It's the top dog. They really don't have any competition. I mean, any smaller companies that are competing with them, I, I would say, are probably just going to end up getting acquired by Teladoc. But it's the type of business where the bigger your network gets, the stronger your competitive advantage is. And there is no close number two. I absolutely 100% agree with that. I think the only thing that I want to watch here is the is the cost side of the equation because obviously most of the healthcare spending in, in for the sector goes to providers. So the question becomes, okay, how uh, how expensive will it be providing these services, and does the market support um, a price that can think can, can, can cover those costs? And that's something that we're going to have to watch over time. 100% agree with you because again, like we started off the show. I look at where I think that healthcare, primary care, will be in 20 or 30 years, and it's not me sitting in my off in a doctor's office for a half hour waiting for him to to finally call my name. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's one of many ways in which the healthcare system needs to get more efficient. So I am thankful that there is a company out here that is doing this, and I, I from a personal perspective, wish them luck. I would, I would love to have this wide network available to me. 
All right, that will wrap us up for this show. Thank you so much, Todd, for being here with me today. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thank you so much, Austin, for your work as always. Uh, He is our wonderful producer. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Harges. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!